Lord, we thank you so much for the time for us to gather together and to, to be in your word. We ask that your spirit would guide us as we look at it. We thank you so much for just your kindness to us, your love, uh, Father, for revealing yourself to us through your son. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit that helps us understand your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to see, um, Lord, that you came to suffer and then to enter into your glory. And so we will suffer to before we enter into your glory. So let us not be surprised by the sufferings of this world, but uh, let us not forget the glory uh, to look to heaven and to look to you in this life. Um, we pray that you'd open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So Johnny's question is back from a couple weeks ago, the argument about authority and first things. And so he's talking about from a scientific standpoint, they, they use what we would call uh, the, in philosophy and even the philosophy of science would be empiricism. So you, you can observe certain things, you can test certain things, and, and then therefore you can prove that it's true by empiricism. So the question more becomes like, how do you know that the empirical f way of determining truth is the right way? A scientist is going to say, because we look at certain data, we observe, we test, we repeat, we measure, and then we find out that it's true and verifiable. What has he just done? He's tried to demonstrate empiricism is true by appealing to empiricism. There's no other place that a scientist can go to other than to go to empiricism to prove empiricism. And he's right to do that, right? A, a person who believes that empiricism is the ultimate authority should not appeal to any other authority than that authority if they're going to say that's the highest form of authority. When it comes to the Bible, <clears throat> if, we, if we say that that God is the highest form of authority. If God were to somehow to appeal to empiricism to demonstrate his highest form of authority, he'd be saying that he's not the highest form of authority. But when he could swear by no one higher, he swore by himself. So he's the highest form of authority. So he's the first things when it the first thing when it comes to the authority of God's word. Um, when it comes to scripture, so we argue that the scripture in and of itself is the highest form of authority, and then. As you begin to observe and look out into the world, uh, yes, you can see verification points for your first year place of starting. But if you appeal outside of your a um, priori argument, then you've you've debunked your argument from the get go is the argument. All right. So this doesn't mean that an empiricist never appeals to rationalism or never appeal, appeals to some other form. But all arguments for first things of necessity must start with that first thing. Yeah, Bill. Um, it, what would you say to someone who says that that form of epistemology would make it possible to basically justify anything? Because all I have to say is my first thing. I believe the Koran because um, that's my first thing. I believe yeah. the universe is run by cleaning gremlins. Totally. Or, or the spaghetti monster. What's the, uh, what's the thing they talk about? The flying spaghetti monster. Yeah, that, that's my first thing, and as long as it's my first thing, you can't say anything to me about that. Right. Because that's my first thing, and I'm, I'm, I'm allowing it to be circular. I don't have to give any justification. Yeah. So the argument. So Bill's question is, well, what, what prevents somebody from just making something up and saying this is my first thing? 
And that's really to miss the point of the argument from a philosophical standpoint. The argument is I start with my first thing, therefore you cannot challenge me. The argument is everybody has first things. Everybody has them. And so we want to be careful as Christians that we don't come into a debate and somehow grant them their first things and think that somehow we've got to appeal on their ground for our first thing. No, we're all dealing with the same problem. And that is all of us make a step of a priori or what we call a step of faith. We all start there. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to get it out on the table. I have my starting point. You have your starting point. Let's see whose starting point kind of works. Yeah. No. No, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going to argue that there's some arbiter. I'm still. I'm going to still stay with my starting point that God's the ultimate arbiter. But what I am going to say is that just like the Proverbs says that do not answer a fool according to his folly. His folly is I'm going to start with my foundational point, but I'm going to I'm going to demand that you're circular. No, we don't answer him on that basis, but we do answer a fool according to his folly. Let's show you what your starting point will end with. So a person who wants to deny the existence of God and say, well, we just start with reason. We just start with reason. Okay, on what basis do you, deter do you come up with any kind of ethics whatsoever, merely based upon, let's say, a naturalistic evolutionary viewpoint? You can't arrive at ethics. You can't even arrive at laws of logic based upon random chance. Laws of logic do not occur in a world of random chance. All right. So you, sh you demonstrate the irrationality of their worldview. Let's enter into your worldview for a moment and say, where would that lead us? And then you say, well, let's stick with my worldview. Where does that lead us? We're not. You know, I, I'm not for a second thinking that I'm going to lead somebody to Christ merely because I reveal my starting point. But all we're doing is we're trying to demonstrate that all of us have it. All of us start circular. Ultimately, what it comes down to, all of us have to appeal to our first cause. And we know that the first cause is God. Without God, in fact, we're, we, let's go ahead and, and turn here because we're going to get to this this morning anyway. Look at Luke chapter 10. I'm glad Johnny and... And Bill have brought this up because these are, these really are foundational matters. Because um, I found that as Christians, too often we give up the ground with the very few first few statements that we say. Is we just kind of a without sometimes unwittingly we just kind of give in to the opposition's worldview, and and then once we start going down that train. Um, of, un, you know, we just kind of assume uninterpreted facts. Uh, we kind of shooting ourselves in the foot. But check out Luke chapter 10. This will actually overlap with our talk of the Trinity a little bit later. Remember the disciples, the 70 are sent out to go preach the gospel. What's happening? Jesus gives them power. They go out, they're casting out demons. They're healing people. They're so excited. They come back. They're filled with joy. In verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice because the demons are subject, but rejoice. Why? Because your names are written in heaven. How do I know that? Because Jesus told me so. Verse 21 In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have what? Hidden these things from the wise and prudent and what? Revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, it seemed good in your sight. That's a foundational epistemological statement. What do I mean by that? I mean that foundationally we believe that God is a God who reveals himself to some and conceals himself to others. And the Bible's very, very clear that nobody comes to a knowledge of God merely through human wisdom. Those people that think they're prudent, those people that think they're wise, they follow their various philosophical systems and so on and so forth. Jesus is very clear in fact, he's rejoicing within the spirit and thanking the father. We have a, trin a father, son, Holy Spirit agreeing together in this one verse that the father has hidden certain things to the prudent and wise and revealed them to whom? Babes. So part of what this means is God is in the business of revealing himself to children who will come to him by faith and recognize that he is the one who has the highest authority. He's the one that can open up rise to truth and that people that actually, you know, are approaching things merely from other starting points. If they don't come to a place where they recognize God as the starting point, God's in the business of hiding things from them. And so we have to, we just, we, we start there. If you don't start there, then, then you can think, well, I'll just follow rationalism. And I'll get, I think, what did Descartes do? Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. What did he mean? He means I can reason myself to a belief in God apart from revelation. That was his experiment. I want to see, can we reason ourselves to God with no revelation? Thomas Aquinas tried to do the same thing with natural theology. We can reason ourselves to God, set the Bible aside for a second, Let's grant the assumptions of someone who doesn't believe in revelation and let's try to reason ourselves to God. Guess what? Ain't going to happen. Why? Because God reveals things to babes, hides them from the prudent and the wise. Where, Paul says, where is the wise man of this age? Where is the scribe? Where is the scholar? God has chosen to reveal himself the fool, through a foolish means. The foolish means is through the preaching of the gospel so that nobody could boast. Think about it. I, I don't know if, if I was starting a business to try to spread my message and get as many people as possible to believe in my message. I don't think I would send people around preaching that Jesus Christ died on a cross and was raised from the dead. Dying on the cross, that's offensive to Greeks raising from the dead. That's offensive to a lot of people, especially rationalists who, who, who possibly could raise from the dead. 
right? And so anyway, that's these are these are excellent questions. Um, so I guess one of the things I would encourage you guys to do and and as we move through this class and and keep asking questions like this, but one of the things one of the foundational positions I've come to I didn't believe this when I was younger, but I do now. I thought I believed it, but here here's here's one thing I I believe very strongly right now. I am not very smart. And God is. I am my knowledge is so little. My ability to connect all of the dots in life is so restrained merely because one I'm I'm not infinite, I'm finite. Two, I'm a sinner. Three, the older I get, the more I've forgotten. I just, I don't connect the dots. But here's what I know. God has revealed himself in his word and he is really smart. And the more I give myself to this book, even I'll tell you, this is the thing that's been a a wonderful discovery here of late. The more I give myself to some of the toughest passages in this book, there's passages in the Bible that have, really caused me problems over the years where I've looked at them. I'm like, what does that mean? And it kind of gives, you know that where you come across a certain passage of the Bible and you, it kind of bothers you and you're kind of, I wish that wasn't in there. Right. I found that when I give myself to passages just like that, and I really start to search it out and I'm praying and I'm doing the research over time, I start to find out, whoa, God was a lot smarter than he, I thought he was. Uh, that I'm the one who either misunderstood the passage or, no, I understood it. I just didn't like it. <laughs> um, and then the more I start to, to look at who God is, the more I find that he is just a lot smarter than me. And so I, I find I'm finding more and more peace um, and joy just in simply trusting, just like the hymn says, trusting what God says in his word. And then when I, when I really believe, I find my eyes are getting more and more open to who he is. When we know him and our eyes are more open to who he is, then we begin to view the world rightly. Okay, that's pro- part of the problem with looking out to the world through human eyes is it is very difficult for us to interpret the world rightly without a right relationship with God. We can look at the world, have certain facts, and then we can actually come to fairly decent conclusions on certain physical elements. We can look at something and say, yeah, that's a cat and that's a cow, um, and then come to completely wrong conclusions about the significance of those things. Um, But once we're rightly related to God, there's so many more things that open up to us. Let's go ahead and uh, last week, Chris just did an awesome job introducing us to the perfections, the attributes of God, and um, and helping us see the uh, what we call the incommunicable attributes. And we talk about incommunicable and communicable. These are kind of those terms are somewhat artificial. We know that there's various perfections and attributes, characteristics of our God. We, we, we put them into categories to try to get our minds around these things. Last week we talked about incommunicable, meaning these are things that God alone shares. He doesn't share with us. Remember the, the Bible says 
when the devil said, I will be like the most high God, was that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. But we're called to imitate God and to be holy just like he is holy. So there's ways in which people should try to be like God, but we don't want to try to be like God like the devil wanted to be like God. So that demonstrates there's some ways in which we're like God and some ways in which we should not dare to try to be like God. Correct? Does that make sense? And so some of the things that we're, most of the things we were talking about last week are ways in which we're just not like God. We could never be. We should never even think that we could try to be. And Chris gave the little thing, um, A-E-I-O-U. So he is always eternal, always independent, right? A-E-I-O, always omnipotent. And then actually it's omniscient. And then uh, actually, no, omnipresent, omnipresent, sorry. And then uh, always unchangeable. Okay, so these are ways in which we're just not like God, right? He's spirit, he's infinite, He's always existed. We we are derivative. He is underived. Um, he is the aseity of God, right? He he is self-existent. He doesn't need us. He's totally independent of us. Uh, Chris covered the idea that he's uh, omnipresent. Uh, that doesn't mean that he. It, it really has the idea that there's no spatial dimensions to spirit, right? And he's at every place. He can be at any one place at any one time with his whole being. And when we talk about that, it's not like God is wearing different hats. He's not divided. Um, And so that kind of brings us this morning to the unity of God. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the unity. We're going to talk about um, the Trinity. And then I don't know if we're going to get to the other ones today. We'll see how this works. Uh, But let's talk about the unity of God first that God is the only divine being. He has a total unity of character. Um, Everything he does is fully consistent with all of his attributes. That's what we mean when we talk about the unity of God. There isn't a good side and a bad side to God, right? There's not yin and yang inside of God. We don't have a dark side of the force and a good side of the force that are all balancing each other out. God is not like this bad guy in the Old Testament and a good guy in the New Testament is another way that we can misconstrue God. God is unified in his being. Sometimes theologians call this the simplicity of God, which basically means that God's attributes aren't little bits that you add up together like parts of a car. He is all one. And so Exodus 34 would be one place. You could open up to Exodus 34, 6 and 7. You can open up there or you can write this down where it says the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children children uh, for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation to those who hate him. So God is merciful and just. And though these traits may seem to be at odds, they are resolved ultimately in Jesus Christ. when He comes and dies on the cross to bear his sins, to bear the wrath of God, but also to show mercy simultaneously. Another way we could say this is God's not schizophrenic. Um, sometimes when I read the Bible, 
especially the prophets. I don't know if you, you guys read the prophets, you'll read like one paragraph and you've got this pronouncement of incredible judgment. And then the very next sentence, nevertheless, I love you. And I'm just like, what just happened? Um, are God's you know, pronouncements at odds with one another? Well, part of it, we need to understand how to read the prophets you know, there's a way of reading the prophets to understand the remnant. You have to understand the first and second advent of Christ, uh, the kingdom. There's certain ways to understand, you know, understand the prophets. Um, but I'll just give you one illustration. I mean, God, again, he's not wearing different. It's not like he puts on his judgment hat and he takes it off. He put on his mercy hat. He's got different masks that he wears. No, he is the same unified, simple God. He's not schizophrenic. Uh, sometimes lately we've been going out, you know, doing some witnessing at UCR. One of the things that I've been sharing with students, uh, because I've, I get this question frequently is, is how can your, how can your God be so, you know, I read the Bible and he's punishing and killing all these people. And then you guys say he's so loving. How is it that God is so loving at the same time he's showing all this wrath? And one of the things I'll share with them is I'll say, well, what, <clears throat> what would you think of a, you know, of a, of a guy who his, his uh, child was molested, raped, and killed. Um, how do you think he would feel towards the rapist and the one who killed his child? Do you think he would be angry? And I think most people, if they're honest, they would say yes. And his anger towards the rapist, is that demonstrating some love towards the child? The question would, the answer would be, Yes, um, that one of the ways that you see God demonstrating one of the more significant ways you see God demonstrating his love in the Bible is by pouring out his wrath on their enemies. And you see that all over the Bible. Second Thessalonians is just one place where the Thessalonians have been getting hammered by their persecutors. And uh, Paul says Jesus, it's a just thing for Jesus Christ to come back with flaming fire to take vengeance upon his enemies and all those who disobey the gospel because of what they've been doing to you. You've been suffering underneath their hand patiently, but God's going to come and take care of business. And I'll actually share this as part of my testimony. I'll say, you know what? One of the ways that God has demonstrated his love, me, his love towards me is by demonstrating his wrath on my abuser. You know, and my family, we're actually a product of child abuse. I've shared that at different points. God could have shown mercy, right, to the abuser. Turned out they didn't repent. They died in their sins. God loved me by taking his wrath out on him. Is that inconsistent? No, it is not. It's one of the ways that God demonstrates his love. He demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But he also demonstrates his love by pouring out his wrath upon those that would persecute his kids. Does that make sense? And so there's there's a simplicity. There's a what we would call a unity within the attributes of God. And and, and, and ultimately, we do see that in, in the cross. Um, the mystery part of that for us is we don't always know where God's wrath and love are falling on people. If you were to look at the Apostle Paul when he was writing to go kill Christians in Damascus, right? You would have thought there's a guy that's an object of God's wrath. And then Jesus Christ shows up, knocks him off his horse, 
loves him and says, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my sake. And then Paul goes around expressing the love of the Lord. He's just amazed. He's just blown away that the Lord would have such mercy upon him. And and when he was killing Christians. And so we don't always know. That's why we have to say vengeance. We leave vengeance to the Lord. So that's the unity of God, which brings us to the Trinity. Why don't you open up to John? We've already looked at Luke, but I want you guys to open up to John chapter 14 and just consider one passage. This is, I wish we could talk at length about the Trinity. I've, um, I think we still have this online. I think we have like three sermons on the Trinity from way back. And, um, and then we have several lectures from previous Sunday school classes on the Trinity. I was listening to one this week and, and I didn't like it. I felt like I, I needed to improve the lesson, so I don't recommend it. Um, maybe I just didn't like my voice. I don't know what it was. But John fourteen twenty six it says this, uh, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. In this one verse... Without even blinking, Jesus is talking about this inter-Trinitarian relationship. The helper, the advocate, um, the, para, uh, what do you call it, paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. So the Father's going to send the Spirit in the, under the authority of Christ. He's going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So there's this interworking between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we talk about the Trinity, uh, it's very easy for us to kind of be like, oh boy, it'd be nice if we just didn't have to talk about this topic. The Trinity kind of, you, you almost get a feeling that people feel like the Trinity is is something that you should shove in the corner just for theologians to talk about. It's something that's somewhat embarrassing when you're trying to witness and share the gospel. People start asking these uncomfortable questions like, you know, how in the world can God be one and three at the same time? That's a total contradiction. So then we bring out these really unusual analogies like an egg, right? We start talking about, well, you know, God's like uh, an egg with uh, the shell and the white and the yolk. And so God's kind of... Like, so your God's like an egg? Yeah, the egginess of God. Or we'll talk about water or, you know, we, you know, we, ha- we take different analogies to try to explain this very uncomfortable doctrine um, called the Trinity. Um, but I want to suggest to you that the Trinity is not an uncomfortable doctrine it is the very essence of Christianity, and it is what separates our faith from all other religions on the planet, and indeed all other philosophies on the planet. And without a triune God, you do not have a personal God of love. The Trinity is, and it's unique, it's, it's, no matter what your various places, where I, I took the classes too, where the professors get up there and try to say that the the Trinity was robbed from Zoroastrianism or some Hindu sect or it's just nonsense. There's nothing like the Trinity other than what we have revealed in the Bible. It is completely 
unique <clears throat> and it is it is beautiful. And so um, let's ask a, a few questions here. Um, let's give a definition. Wayne Grudem, I think, has a great definition of the, tr- of the Trinity. And then we're going to look at some scripture passages to see if this definition bears out. He says, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. And in saying this definition, all Wayne Grudem is trying to do is basically say what the church has said for 2,000 years, and that is just to say what the scripture affirms. There are three persons. Okay, everybody say there are three persons. Each person is fully God. Say each person is fully God. And then thirdly, there is one God. That's the Trinity in a nutshell. There are three persons. Each person is fully God. There is one God. And the Bible says this without blinking. I mean, there's just you, you, you start you re, when you read through your um, your Bible and you start looking for evidences of the persons and the deity and the oneness of God. It's just everywhere. It's not like it's like a little bit here and a little bit there. It's everywhere. The verse we just read is just one sample of just hundreds of passages that continually bring out this relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, And so when God wants to reveal himself, he reveals himself as a trinity in unity. So let's talk about the oneness first. This means that God is one in essence. Um, So later in church history, uh, the early church didn't quite use this term, but in the fourth century, they began to use the word substance to try to distinguish what they were saying from the cultists. Theologians argued that scripture, that the son and the spirit are equal in substance to the father. That is, there is only one being known as God. And they would point to passages like Deuteronomy six, four, the Lord, our God is one. One in substance, not necessarily numerically one that wouldn't have even entered the mind of a Jew. They wouldn't be like, oh, let's make sure that everybody knows that God is numerically one. No, they want everybody to know that there's only one God rather than Molech and Baal. Um, you worship this unified God. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God beside me. The Old Testament is replete with such types of statements. While the Jews didn't always practice that, right? It is very true that Jews went off to worship other gods. That didn't mean that they were real gods. They would just kind of fall into what, you know, cultures do. Um, The Jews fell into worshiping other gods just like we're falling into Eastern religions today. Cultures kind of ebb and flow and kind of wherever the culture goes, then people tend to go. They get back to the good old time religion of Baal worship and now they're worshiping Baal. Um, But this God is a unity in three distinct persons. The father is God. The son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. So we can make affirmations. Uh, that come right out of scripture and we'll demonstrate this more when we talk about the doctrine of Christ, doctrine of Holy spirit. 
But we would say that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are all God in and of themselves. The Belgic Confession in 1561 has says it like this. The Father is the cause, origin, and source of all things, visible as well as invisible. The Son is the word, the wisdom, and the image of the Father. The Holy Spirit is the eternal power and might and proceeds from the Father and the Son. Nevertheless, the distinction does not divide God into three. Since Scripture teaches us that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit each has a distinct subsistence, that means personhood, uh, distinguished by characteristics, yet in such a way that these three persons are only one God. These persons thus distinct are neither divided nor fused nor mixed together. Why are they using so many different distinctions? Because they're trying to ward off false teaching. The Bible comes along and basically says, here's God. There's three persons. Each person's fully God. But then over the centuries, there's always been different threats and challenges to the personhood of God. And so the church has to rise just like today and begin to distinguish itself. Um, so when we talk about each person being uh, each person of the Trinity being God and eternally so, we're not talking about three flavors of God. We're not talking about three masks. We're not talking about three modes. Um, we're talking about three persons who are indeed God. And yet there is one God. Um, now, it is true that the word Trinity is the word Trinity used anywhere in the Bible. No, you don't see the word Trinity in anywhere in the Bible. It was first coined by Tertullian uh, around the second century, uh, a generation after the apostles. But it is a helpful word that summarizes what scripture says regarding the relationship in the Godhead. Um, and so let's let's go ahead and turn to a couple passages that I think would will, will help us. Actually, I'm going to refer to a couple just by way of a overview because we're going to come back to these and then we'll we'll turn to uh, uh, some other passes. So as far as demonstrating that Jesus, that the Bible doesn't even blink at demonstrating that Jesus is God, you guys could look at John 1. Many of you guys know that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Then the word became flesh, dwelt among us. Titus 2.13, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's just plain our great God and Savior Jesus Christ um, Isaiah 9 6 is uh, he is the might called the mighty God by way of prophecy uh, the Holy Spirit is presented everywhere according uh, is present everywhere according to Psalm 139 also in 1st Corinthians 2 uh, he reveals the very thoughts of God um, he gives new life in John 3 and we're going to spend um, quite a bit of time with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit uh, a little bit later. But let's open up to uh, Matthew 3. Rather than, I want to encourage you guys, rather than using analogies like the egg or the water or like a three-leaf clover or something like that, um, point your children to the statements that are made right in Scripture. Um, you know, you notice when you're, when you start talking to your kids about the Godhead and you just read to them the passive scripture, 
they'll start just naturally referring to Jesus as God. And even like when you're in a passage that doesn't seem to be really talking about Jesus, it's talking about God the Father. And once they start hearing the word God, they'll just start saying Jesus because they start seeing the connection in their minds between God and Jesus. So here we have in Matthew, the the baptism passage, Matthew 13, Jesus is baptized. When he had been baptized, Jesus came immediately from the water. He beheld, uh, and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am. What? Well, pleased. So there are several different things that we notice in this passage. Um, Jesus is called what in verse 17? By the father. Son. So he's called a son. He's called a beloved son. The father is well pleased with this beloved son. And then we have the Holy Spirit descending. So at, in, t- in time and space, we have a distinction between the father, son and Holy Spirit uh, in the baptism of Christ. And notice that Jesus is called the son. And we see the son referring to God as the father many different times. Um, And what seems to be happening in the language of scripture is that God, once Jesus shows up on the scene, the fatherhood of God becomes front and center. It's not that fatherhood is never mentioned in the Old Testament relationship to Old Testament saints. It is. But once the son is incarnated, this father son relationship comes to the forefront And this is not a relationship that just it's not like God looks down and says, huh, let's try to figure out a nice little analogy to explain the Godhead to human beings. Let's see. I see fathers and sons over there. Oh, I'll take on the role of father. You take on the role of son. That way people can kind of understand our relationship. No, that's not the way it goes at all. We are actually a copy of the father and the son. Look over at John chapter 17, this high priestly prayer where Jesus is actually praying for us and we get to eavesdrop, so to speak, on this conversation. Verse 24, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they whom you gave me may be with me where uh, where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What was going on before the foundation of the world? What was going on before God created the world? There was love. There was glory. There was a father. There was a son. As we look at the earlier chapters of John, there was a spirit. And so there was relationship. There was love. There was an exchanging of glory going on long before you and I ever came into existence before I was a sparkle in my mama's eye. Right. And way, way back before then there was something happening between the father, son, and Holy spirit. What does this demonstrate? This demonstrates what uh, Chris was talking about last week, the aseity of God, the independence of God, God, I'm going to say a shocking statement here. God does not need Mike Berry. God doesn't need Mike Berry. I could fall over dead right now. And guess what? 
God would be okay. The gates of hell would still not prevail against the church. God would get things done. And guess there, there would still be this love thing before I ever existed. God didn't create me out of need, in other words. I was down at San Bernardino train station uh, about four, four or five months ago talking to a Muslim. And I asked him, who did Allah love before he created the world? And he had no idea what I was talking about. I said, who did Allah love? You believe that because he was trying to convince me that Allah is love, which is not what Islam really teaches. But he was trying to convince me that Allah is love. That's robbing the Christian God. Um, so who did God love? Who did Allah love? He never could quite understand the question. And so I had to, I had to slow down a little bit. I said, in Christianity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loved one another before they created anything. There was relationship. So when God the Father and God the Son created, they didn't create because they needed us. And so therefore, God's not looking at me trying to get something from me like the Greek gods. He's giving to me. He has everything he needs. He has perfect delight and happiness and love within himself. And everything that he gives me is just grace. There's nothing that I add to the triune God I don't add anything to that. He creates me. I get to come in to that love bubble, that love hug, and I get to experience it. But he doesn't need me. Um, this separates the Christian God from all other gods, supposed gods. In Islam, the basic concept of Islam is what? Submission. You submit to Allah. That's the main thing that he's looking for is that you submit. Now think about this. With God, we do think of him as a creator. With the Christian God, we do think of him as a ruler. But God could be a ruler, and, and that really doesn't capture what we see in the Bible. You know, I could have a, a police officer try to pull me over. I'm going 90 down the 395. He pulls me over, and he says, uh, I notice you're a pastor. I'm going to let you go. I'd be appreciative, but I wouldn't like hug the guy and love the guy for the rest of my life. Right. I'd be like, whoa, I'm so glad he let me off. But when you come into a relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that changes things. If he's more than just a ruler, more than just a creator, more than just a judge. If he's father, that's a big deal. And think about this. That Christianity, when you boil Christianity down, what is it that really separates Christianity from every other faith? Is it the fact that we believe in salvation by grace alone? There's some people that affirm grace alone, but they don't believe in the Trinity. In fact, there's a, a Buddhist sect in the 1500s that actually believed that they could achieve nirvana by grace alone throughout the, without their own efforts. You could believe... Um, that Jesus Christ died on the cross and still not have the Christian God. Do Jehovah Witnesses believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross? Yeah, they do. Yeah, Mormons. There's lots of different false religions that believe in certain aspects of Christianity, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was raised from the dead, um, grace alone, faith alone. What is it that really separates, that cuts through everything, that gives us an understanding of the Christian God? 
It's the Trinity. It's the fact that God is a father. By virtue of him being a father means that eternally God is a begetting God, that he, cre- he gives life of himself. And he, he begets a son that is unique. The fact that the Bible, notice, turn back to John 1 real quick. John chapter 1, and I've got to end in 40 seconds because I don't want to go over. John chapter 1, remember it says, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. We're called sons, but we're not sons like the son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's something only about the sonship of God. And there's something only about the fathershood of the father. Let's go ahead and pray. And then anybody that wants to come on up, you can, you can come ask me some questions. Lord, we thank you so much for your kindness and love. We pray, Father, that you'd help us to walk in this fatherhood and sonship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.